This week's episode is brought to you by Screencastify. Millions of people use Screencastify to record, edit, and share videos. Visit Screencastify.com to see what all the hype is about and start your free account today. That's Screencastify.com. Hello, welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast, a weekly look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm the managing editor here at Ed Surge, a nonprofit newsroom, and you can find us at edsurge.com. This week, we are trying to better understand how the mind works, including what is happening in your brain right now as you listen to this podcast. As we talked about in past episodes, we're living in a time of tons of new discoveries in the field of neuroscience. As researchers, they're continuing to find out more about how brain science works. And so much of that work and those discoveries can really help educators or anyone who wants to better understand how teaching and learning works. This week, we are talking to a neuroscientist who is out with a brand new book about the mind. It's called Brainscapes, the warped, wondrous maps written in your brain and how they guide you. That author, our guest today, is Rebecca Schwarzlos, a postdoc at Washington University in St. Louis. She has spent her career fascinated by what makes humans tick, and she's even made some significant discoveries of her own in the process. This conversation was over Zoom, and one thing I have to mention is just how animated Schwarzlos was, um, using her hands to help illustrate and emphasize the points she was making and these complex issues, which, as you'll hear, happens to be a good way to focus someone's attention as they learn new, complex information. Of course, you can't see that, but I think you'll get the idea and her enthusiasm. Here is my conversation with Rebecca Schwarzlos. A key insight that you explore in this book is that our minds use a clever trick, really. It sounds like, you know, a, a kind of efficiency technique that involves mapping, like, especially when it comes to maps of how our perceptions work of the world. Um, can you explain, though, what you mean by maps, right? It's a metaphor, but it sounds like there's like a literal map in our head. Yeah, yes. Well, um, there is. <laughs> there are many literal maps in your head. Um, they are not maps that you can see with the naked eye. Um, they are made up um, based on the activity of electricity, um, the, the, the firing of neurons. Um, but they are actually taking up space in the the surfaces of your brain and in the folds of your brain. Um, and these, these maps are um, how our brains represent things like what we see or what we hear, what we feel, how we move. Um, and they do it in a way that kind of saves space. As you said, it's a clever trick to save space and keep our brains nice and small so we can walk around and, um, you know, manage our appetites. Uh, but but in essence, what they are, um, because of the way that our brain organizes itself into these maps, we have parts of the brain that have um, a correspondence to reality. So, for example, there's um, a visual map. Um, a particular, there are several visual maps in your brain. One is particularly large. Um, and if you um, if something happens to a part of that visual map, like, um, you know, in, in war, if a bullet were to go through a part of that map, um, the person who has lost this part of, of his or her map will have a hole in their, their perception, visual perception of the world. So in a way, it's like by piercing that, that map in the brain of vision, we have pierced their perception of their visual experience. 
Um, and the and the same is true for for touch and for um, for hearing, especially. Yeah. So there are. This is how some of the insights came about, right? They literally studied soldiers who did have these traumatic bullets to the head, and noticed that a certain spot consistently would have a certain effect on perception. Literally, a hole in the 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 image of being perceived. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the, you know, the kind of the sad truth about neuroscience is that many of the results came out of, of people having terrible things happen to them. And um, so a lot of the work came from either people having um, being in war and having damage to the brain, as you described, or having strokes and losing uh, abilities or having um, tumors or other things, seizures. So um uh, a lot of the early work before we have our modern technology where we can kind of peer into a, a living brain without disrupting it and and even make these maps visible in somebody who is, is feeling fine and, and, and we don't harm them. Um, uh, at the time, the only way to do this was right to have an unfortunate event happen and to observe how they people would completely lose capabilities or parts of their perception. Those were the first clues. Now, I guess I want to just not to belabor this, but I really, I think it's fascinating when I, when you say like a hole in perception, is it, it's like almost like my, my screen on my iPhone or something having like a couple, a little section that got broken and like, there's just nothing there. There's like no pixels firing in that area, but the rest of the image is clear. Is that something like that? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it is, if they call it a, a scotoma. And um, you can have a scotoma when something damages a part of your retina in your eye, but you can also have a visual scotoma when something damages a part of this visual map in your brain. And what that shows us is that what we're perceiving is not just what information is coming into our eyes in the case of vision, but really what is happening within our brains and their maps. Um, That's what generates our conscious perception of what we see and feel. Now, why is this more efficient to have the, you know, this certain spot always be what's, you know, the top right quarter of my, of my perception of vision, say? Um, you know, it's, it's funny because we tend to think of our minds as sort of boundless and um, sort of ethereal. They don't have a structure, but the truth is that our brain is a very physical organ and there are a lot of physical constraints to how it can be linked up. And so each of the neurons in your brain in order, and there are about 80 plus billion of them, um, have, in order to do their work, they have to be connected to many other neurons. And these are physical connections um, with a tiny gap between them. But these physical connections are like wires that they speak to each other through. And if you... um, as you have more neurons in a brain, you have you have more connections you need to have. And those connections start to just will quickly take over, and make an enormous brain. You, you know, you you could very easily have the number of neurons that you have in your brain, but have a brain the size of, you know, the Epcot Center orb. Um, it is remarkable how quickly they can gobble up space. And so from a very on a pr- very practical level, there has to be some way that the brain can kind of represent more information, but keep those connections very short, as short as possible. And maps are the perfect way to do that. What they do are they put things, neurons next to each other that represent similar things. So for example, in the case of vision, two points, neighboring points in space. 
And um, because of the way we process information, which often entails a lot of kind of what we call local processing or or sort of fine grain comparison of of neighboring areas in in our various senses, um, that's where most of the connections need to be is with like-minded neurons. And if you put them all nearby, clustered together, then they can have short little wires and talk to each other um, as much as they like without taking up so much space. And if you think about that kind of multiplied across the different senses and different parts of your body, it just kind of, it's a absolutely universal theme throughout not just the human brain and our senses, but all kinds of creatures, including insects. Um, And uh, so it is such an efficient way of managing brain organization that we, we all use it. Oh, wow. And I, I'm like, you know, there, there, the jokes about, you know, getting a big head, but as big as the Epcot center geodesic dome, that, that is something that's hard to to picture, but that's funny. Yeah. That would be considered a catastrophic outcome, but (laughs) it does illustrate, you know, things can get out of control when you have, you know, 80 plus billion cells trying to talk to each other. One of the things that our listeners, many of our listeners are thinking about is, is education. And there's one concept in here that particularly struck me, which was something called synchrony. Um, I, I found this pretty fascinating about something that happens when two or more people communicate as far as the brain. Um, can you describe what this concept is and what it's like when maybe like you and I right now are, are talking, you're, you're explaining a concept and I'm trying to keep up with you and, and, Something's going on in both of our brains here that that we can glimpse from the research that's out there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is a this is a fascinating direction that research has been going in that brain scans have allowed us to learn more and more about. Um, so I'll start with the fact that if, you know these first studies were done where they uh, scientists would show people in a, a brain in an MRI machine, um, they would show them the same movie and um, just record what naturally happened in their brain during during the watching of the movie. And what was surprising is that a lot of the same things were happening across different brains. Um, and, and in fact, a large portion of the brain was engaging in very synchronized, similar activity in similar areas across individuals. And a lot of these areas are these areas that have maps that I described, the, um, the areas that kind of um, reflect our our sensations and um, our kind of things that we recognize in the world. And there's sort of a topography in our brain of these representations. And we call upon those when we um, when we see something, when we think about an idea, when we um, have a thought or hear a word, we are actually using kind of a distributed activity throughout these parts of the brain to represent that idea. For example, you know, when we when we talk about an action or when I see you pick something up with your hand, um, it will actually, it will, I will, yeah, I will actually um, mirror that in my own brain and I will show activity in my motor and um, touch areas for my, the same hand that I am in my way processing what you're doing um, by mimicking those actions in my own maps. Even if you don't move your hand, the brain is already getting ready. Yeah, you're not moving your hand, but the brain is processing your action by, in a way, kind of um, mirroring it in a kind of a low level. 
Um, it's sort of like, um, it's like, it's not mental imagery because you, you don't actually, you know, you're, you're actually seeing something happen, but it's like that. It's like, so that mirroring allows you to kind of access your own representation of what that gesture means, how it feels. And that's all part of how, you know, reaching and touching and grabbing what it means, what it, it happens to be. So when you extract, extrapolate that to um, like a classroom setting, you, um, which I, you know, you are trying to, you want to um, get across ideas and concepts, some of which are very abstract, you know, and very challenging, especially say like we want to teach somebody calculus or you want them to think about the, the, the higher order themes in literature. Um, how do we get those ideas across? Um, and so again, you know, the, so there, there ha was a study kind of, I think this is remarkable where they, um, they took a, they did neuroimaging of a teacher, um, and they kind of, uh, they had the teacher give a talk and they neuroimaged the teacher and they neuroimaged the, the students and they looked at the synchrony, um, and, you know, the synchrony that was the, the kids who had the highest synchrony with the teacher um, during the kind of relay of, of material were the ones who scored best on the test afterwards. They had, you know, access the concepts which have a similar kind of topography in their brains as in their teacher's brains. Um, and that that accessing of information actually resulted in better learning. Talk about relating to your students, just like literally a mind meld, right? It's like, there's something physically happening in 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 the brains of the student and teacher that if done right kind of has this mirror quality fascinating yeah yeah and so the, it really is fascinating to think that uh, you know whenever we're communicating here now and then to uh, um you know the listener who could be somewhere else at some other time they're hearing these words and they are actually recapitulating many of the features of our brain activity now in their brains as a listener. And that is actually how we transmit meaning um, from, by all indications, we kind of create that, we, we reproduce that, that basic pattern of neural activity. Um, wow. Which, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty deep. <laughs> After the break, what this idea of mental maps tells us about how instructors can better hold the attention of their students. Stay with us. This week's episode is brought to you by Screencastify. Screencastify is easy to use for teachers at any skill level and students at any age. It was developed by a team of former teachers and administrators so they know how to deliver the best tools and support for educators at every level. Visit Screencastify.com to see why Screencastify is the go-to video solution in more than 70% of U.S. school districts. That's Screencastify.com. Now back to the episode. You also talk about something that a lot of educators think about and that we've discussed on the podcast in the past, which is attention and the, you know, the specific challenge for the brain just in our daily lives, in our existence of attention and how the brain and how these maps can help understand what how how it kind of works that we're paying attention to some things and there's a lot of stuff we are literally oblivious to um around us in the world talk about yeah can you talk at all about like how this map idea kind of helps get at attention and, and understand attention better 
Sure, sure. So attention is, it's fascinating because it happens sort of at many levels of the brain. Um, and you can even see it play out. Um, you can put somebody in a scanner and um, look in their, for example, visual map and have them focus their attention on different parts of of, of, a, of a visual scene. And you can, you can actually detect where they're focusing their attention because activity will ramp up in that part of their visual map. So you can actually you know, see correlates of, um, of attention in the brain maps. But the brain maps that, um, that kind of um, mediate our perception of sensation, like touch or vision, um, are not sort of the puppet masters with, uh, <laughs> with attention. They're sort of, they're the puppets. And the puppet masters um, are, interestingly enough, uh, different areas, areas that sort of seem to be at the intersection of, um, um, of, of motor action and intention. So um, they're kind of like, they're what we are going to do or what we think we might want to act upon. Um, and we have these spatial maps um, that, uh, especially for spatial attention, they sort of, they sort of um, keep track of areas of around us where something important or salient may be happening. And, um, and those areas are both really valuable for when you, you know, you need to make an action and say like, um, you know, a ball's coming at you and you need to catch it or deflect it. Um, but it's also, it's also boosting your ability then to, because these areas are there, it's also going to boost your ability to perceive that the ball's coming and to feel. So, you, you know, you're boosting your sensory abilities and you're boosting your kind of motor action toward these areas in space. Um, and so, these the puppet masters are kind of actually sort of in that in-between zone where they're gathering sensory information and they're pre-motor. Um, so they're like about, they can tell the mo that your your body what to do, but they're not the final stage. So um, I think it kind of underscores how attention is so wrapped up in um, where, you know, what you think is important and where you find are finding information at that moment in your world, where you think you might have to act. So, you know, attention in a way is, you know, probably the purpose that it best serves to us is to make us best able to react to whatever is in front of us at this given time that needs our, our you know, response. And, um, and I can see that being very challenging, you know, from an education standpoint, because, if you have a child who's got something on their mind, they're they're distracted by something that's that's bothering them and feels very urgent, then they may not feel like the material that's being discussed at the board is the most um, salient and action requiring um, part of their uh, experience. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I think it can be helpful to think of that. Like attention is is not just a, it's not just um, something that we need to invest for learning. But it's something that we kind of intuitively use for for action. So I think that could be, in some ways, a, um, an argument for more active learning, kind of ways in which people can use their, you know, be involved in learning and be um, making actions or being called upon. So that it becomes more salient. They they are got to be ready to answer or they need to be listening. Yeah, I wonder, you know, even. Even just the the fact that, you know, somebody being animated as they're delivering 
a message or even just, you know, I can't, you can't help but being, you know, you're gesturing as we're talking. People can't see that because it's a podcast. But it, I wonder if that is some sort of informal strategy that actually takes advantage of the way the mind works in some way. If you're, if you're active up on, uh, you know, the, in front of the room, does that, you know, if you're using gesture as well as your voice in different ways, is that helping attention just the way the, the senses work? I don't know. I, you know, I love that. I love that question because, um, because in terms of sort of the brain also represents objects and sort of there's this, this massive divide between how the brain processes things that are mobile versus things that are not mobile. And also, of course, there are specialized regions that help you process movement. And so you're right, like the moving or the ability to move are things that immediately signal to us that a thing is particularly salient and we should attend to it. So, you know, having that mobility incorporated into, um, you know, a, a lecture or something could certainly be a great way of triggering some of those areas that, that draw attention back to the, the teacher. That's so interesting. And I'm curious, how did you um, get involved with this area of research? What attracted you to studying the brain, if you don't mind? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I, um, you know, I don't know. I've always been really fascinated by it. As a kid, I was very introspective and very, very curious about why things, why we think the way we do and act the way we do. Um, you know, and also kind of seeing the the relevance of how the mind works to behavior and to, to illness, to mental illness, to neurological illness. Um, it just seemed like the big question that I, I wanted to, I wanted to explore um, and, and, and try to understand better. So I think in pursuing it, there's a piece of me that is also kind of pursuing my self-understanding, like, why do I do this? Why do we do this? You know, and, and that kind of curiosity um, is very motivating. Is there a moment where you realized that that maps were an interesting and helpful way to that you know the, to to both both a literal thing you're seeing, but also a a useful thing to talk about as and to explain to people? Yeah. So, um, uh. I think my interest in maps arose from my doctoral work. Um, I was a graduate student at MIT studying um, how we recognize faces and kind of the human body, so object recognition. And um, with my advisor, we we kind of found this new area that was right next to a, a, an area that does face processing, um, an area- A new is, area of the brain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was always there, but <laughs> we just characterized it as something that um, that was specifically engaged in processing um, the sight of, of bodies and body parts. So like helping us to recognize um, other people's bodies and hands. Um, and so in the process of doing that and, and seeing how the face and body regions were always next to each other, um, even though there's kind of always a little wiggle room about where things land in the brain, um, I was really intrigued by that because obviously faces and bodies are next to each other in real life and also related in many ways. And I started to think about what might be causing that? Like, what are the properties that determine where things are laid out in the brain? And, um, and to try to kind of 
help answer that question, in addition to testing some theories with MRI, I also did a lot of reading for maps that we, we understood much better. So we understand much more about visual maps and maps for touch um, sensation or for, for hearing or for movement. And so by researching those, um, you know, and it, it really gave me a better sense of sort of the, the scope of this topic and, um, and the, that it was more profound than I think even we often appreciate in neuroscience. So in, in psychology or neuroscience, usually people learn about a couple of these maps at some point in their schooling. Um, but to, to see how, how very many of them there are in the brain and how very much they are involved in um, so much more than we thought in terms of helping us do higher thought, helping us imagine and remember. Um, it, it's just um, really was exciting. And I wanted to be able to tie that together and introduce people to these ideas. Oh, it's, it is really, really fascinating. Um, I, I also um, noted that you, in your, in your book, you talk about some pretty far out scenarios in the possible future as as humans better understand mental maps and develop things like artificial intelligence um and and i guess i'm curious like without diving too deep into this rabbit hole which is i'm like wow this is like like a whole other episode maybe um but that even just to think about like some future where people could hook your brain to an ai or something and have your thoughts read i don't is am i right that this is something that is is a future thought in as we understand these things better? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I am I am by no means um, somebody who likes to speculate on what will happen in the future. But the truth is that that these the things you're describing about um, uh, what I talk about in my book called brain computer interfaces they are in fact already here, um, and they are already being used um, for some purposes. Um, and to some degree, sometimes more successfully than others. Like what? Name an example. Because, yeah, you talk a little bit about this, but what what is an example that that people could wrap their minds around? Yeah. So the examples that I that I give in, in my book are um, about um, uh, people who are, are paralyzed um, um, or in another case, blind. So, you know, uh, they there's something either they want information that they'd like to re- put have go into their brain, which like visual information because they, their eyes no longer function or information they want to have come out of their brain, like what they would like to do with their hands um, now. And since they can't move, they can't use that information. Well, that kind of information is actually the kind of information that we best understand about the brain, um, the sensory and motor information. And we know pretty well where to find it in the brain and um so you can you can you can actually in the case of a medical situation you know open up the brain and put electrodes in which is what some of the more dramatic um uh sort of medical interventions have started doing it's still very experimental um but uh but they that's kind of met with some remarkable success for being able to have people who are for example paralyzed control of robotic arms um, or cursors, um, other devices, or even be able to simulate their own muscles to move. Um, and uh, um, so that's already happening, but, but you know, it's still experimental. It's still not widespread. Um, but there are also brain, you could 
you can also read information out of the brain in a non-invasive fashion. So you could do it with a, an MRI machine. You can do it with um, 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 electrodes on the surface of the, the scalp, or you know, you could, there are sensors you can put on your scalp that can read neural data from your brain. And you know, no, just a little bit of neural data without any context is usually pretty meaningless. But when you have a lot of that kind of neural data, um, and or you have a lot of context about what the person is doing while they're generating that neural data, you actually can pull out a great deal of information about you know what they're doing, how they're feeling, or sometimes about their kind of medical status. So um, you know, it, I think it's it's going to be increasingly a part of our our social and commercial um, milieu is is um, using these different technologies in hopefully ways that will benefit people and not ways that will um, kind of erode privacy. Wow. It's, it, it is like this ultimate, you know, I, the idea of being able to read one's mind, even if it's, as you say, initially to power a prosthetic for someone who wants it, but then the, the implications beyond that are, they, they are mind bending a little bit. I completely agree. I completely agree. And I think because it sounds so, um, science fiction-y. <laughs> I think that we as a kind of, as a society, we, I think people don't yet know how much, how much to take this seriously and whether this is sort of something that might never happen. Um, and so, you know, I think one of the things that I found in, in uh, people wanting to talk about after, uh, after the publication of this book is, is that aspect of it, that this is a, this is a real technology. And in fact, I talk about why it works. Um, and um, that, so we as a society should really, we should be talking a lot more about it and, and what we, um, what we want to do to, you know, use it for good and not for evil. <laughs> Are there any other parting thoughts you'd have, especially for educators, but anyone who just is like, like you wanting to know how we exist with our minds and in and, and the world, how it all works? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I think one of the things that really, um, has come across um, in my journey through brain maps um, and in, in explaining it and and um, and in researching it is how um, we actually have pretty pretty limited things that we develop maps about. Um, the things that we make maps in our brains about are represent our senses. Um, they represent spatial information. We have maps that represent kind of very small numbers, so small quantities, but not large quantities, um, and, and, and actions that we make. And these are all very kind of very physically grounded, very um, physical, spatial representations. And what's interesting is that as researchers have studied how we represent more complex things, like those abstract things that a teacher needs to get across, like um, you know, exponential growth or, or um, uh, you know, like uh, the complex abstract things you can't sink your teeth into and actually touch. Um, we are actually using, we use these maps, these kind of spatial and we use these, um, these spatial and physical representations in our brain to help us understand things that are abstract and complex. And um, so, for example, like children often count on their fingers before they um, sort of learn about numbers and calculations. So, um, and their associations between a, um, representation of like, finger awareness um, and and counting and learning um, learning basic math. 
So we kind of build upon, and with reading, we build upon the foundations of, of speech perception um, that are laid down very early. So um, I think I think it's really fascinating to think about how all of the difficult things that the brain does, the complex things that teachers teach children to do um, in their older years, are really kind of like building upon these very physical, very spatial, very sensorial foundations that they lay down at an even younger age. I think it both illustrates the importance of what you know, early childhood learning is doing for um, shaping the older brain and also kind of illustrating how important it can be to engage in complex ideas in a variety of ways that include uh, sensory, um, different kind of visual depictions and graphs and maybe playing with blocks or looking at things from a different perspective that engages your spatial and your sensory maps. Well, thank you so much for sharing your your fascinating research and for, for talking about your book today. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. We are growing these days, uh, but we could really use your help to support the show. The best way you can do that is to sign up for our weekly podcast newsletter, which has bonus materials related to each episode. And in this week's case, some more fascinating details about how the brain works. Just go to edsurge.com and click on the word newsletters at the top right. And make sure to tell a friend about the EdSurge podcast on social media or as you come back to schools or campuses or offices in person. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. And you can find me on Twitter at J.R. Young. And feel free to, to share any thoughts you might have about this episode or things you think we should do in the future. I'm at Jeff at edsurge.com. Music this episode was by Roman Jane is found on the free music archive. That track is called Warmth Universally. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for synchronizing your brain with us.